Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 61st episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. And on this episode, I was joined by Sean Ennis, author of the book Internet Empire, The Hidden Digital War. And the book explains how the internet expansion of US companies has been like that of traditional empire building, arguing from detailed analysis of the origin of the internet, the cross-border nature of internet products and the economic nature of war, Sean shows how the rise of internet platforms has been a mixed blessing. He then shares ways that we can change our own behaviour to make the internet economy better for our own individual and collective future. It was great discussing the book with him and I hope you enjoy the episode. mentioned early in the book that there are two primary reasons for war. One is control of economic activity and another is non-economic, such as religious expansion or ideologies. So how does the internet allow the objectives of war to be achieved? The internet allows business to cross borders very easily in ways that were never possible before. And it's about having, if, if you look back in time, the main Purchases that people made were mostly physical. Um, And now, if you look at GDP, for example, a very high percentage of GDP is coming from services. Services are much more ambiguous in terms of where they might be delivered. And even when you're, let's say, purchasing things over the internet, you're purchasing real things, that purchase action can be dealt with by a platform that's been developed in a completely different place where that platform has contracts with some some local businesses around you. So even where you're doing a local purchase that's based on the internet, there is this opportunity for someone else from another place to be the intermediary for that transaction. And so as we've we've moved from purchasing physical, locally produced goods directly and doing it more indirectly, it's the internet that's making that indirect purchase possible. It has many benefits for users because they can more easily compare faster, make comparisons more quickly. But it is true also that an entity from outside of wherever you live can be controlling that transaction now. Absolutely. And just how things, I suppose, were in the past where one would have to have used force to have some sort of influence on another country's actions, whereas now, posing as a company... And offering some sort of service allows that relationship to happen and allows those people within that country to be, for lack of a better term, consumers and still kind of be a part of the whole ideology and ecosystem of that company. That's right. One way to think about this is that in the former empires, when uh, when a territory was taken over, many ordinary people would just say, okay, we have a different ruler and they would largely accept that there wouldn't be too much opposition. But there could be some still some substantial opposition. And now with the way that transactions are occurring, there is this uh, much more, I guess you could say it's a distant relationship, but it's also one where the business transaction is indirect. And it has, nonetheless, there has to be a benefit to the expander, to the, the entity that's creating this expansion. And that's uh, that's the profit that we see from from companies, which is to some extent, absolutely normal that they would be seeking profit. But then from uh, the perspective of of the way the takeover happens, it doesn't require violence. So that makes it a much more 
attractive type of situation. But it does. I mean, the irony is that much of this takeover that we're talking about in the book has actually occurred by us users, simply inviting people in to our homes in a very voluntary way. It's a, sometimes we want to be part of this. At other times, it's this platform has a great service and it's hard to, to find that somewhere else. But sometimes it's, it's really a positive, affirmative action where we, we want to let these companies in. And often I'd say as users, I might not have thought about or others might not have thought about all the implications of letting these other companies in our front door. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why I think the facts that this book pulls together can help us to rethink a little bit our relationship with the internet. on how the Roman Empire and British Empire used economic gain as a purpose of war in the past. Why, Sean, was it important for this to be highlighted in the book as well? One of the theses of this book is that, that we really need to think about empire building as an economic activity. And the reason we need to think about empire building as uh, having an economic foundation is that if the economic foundation is low or, or doesn't exist, then a kind of one of the historical violent expansions of empires would never have worked. And that's the case as well today, that if there were not an economic benefit to the uh, expansion that's been occurring, it also wouldn't be taking place. But if you, especially it's, it's more surprising, I think, for people to look back at the history of, say, the Roman Empire and to think of that as an economic expansion. But one of there, there are many aspects of the way the Romans managed their empire that were quite interesting simply from a oversight and management perspective. For example, by giving the, the local generals in far-flung provinces the right to tax and benefit from the taxation in those areas, they combined the management of the costs of running the empire, which was largely in those days related to keeping that army operating, but also you know, com so combine the costs with the benefits, the benefits being profits that might arise from, from trading. Uh, there could be also some, some taxation benefits, and those would go to the people who were, who were leading the armies. And one thing that was said about Julius Caesar was that he, he went from being someone who was in enormous debt at the beginning of his expansionary activities as a general to being one of the richest and wealthiest people in the Roman Empire because of the territory he'd taken over and then his ability to extract various kinds of rents from that. Even just the possibility of its sustainability, to me, when I was listening to the audiobook, came across like it was going to be difficult to maintain because I'm paraphrasing here, but I believe it was something along the lines of the soldiers were promised land as well as a part of this. So right. that means that they'd have to continue conquering other lands to ensure that they can continue making this promise to them, which is going to be very difficult to achieve, isn't it? Exactly. As the Roman Empire was in its peak expansionary phase, it had this tremendous uh, incentive mechanism for the soldiers, which was to uh, allow them after a full service in the army to have some free land. So that's what you're referring to. And that would be in the conquered territory. So it would, it would actually help 
the Roman center to make more concrete its control over the new territory by actually having people who are newly made citizens being active and in that territory and, and controlling a lot of the physical parts of it, which were the keys at, at that point in time, farming was was the main economic activity. And so having your own people doing a lot of the farming in new territories was also good for the empire. But it's an incentive mechanism that can't last. It can't last unless the empire is in expansionary mode or unless it has lots of extra land, which is not uh, hasn't been distributed yet and then is distributed from generation to generation afterwards. Um, and so that, that actually probably explains some of the difficulties of maintaining the Roman Empire in the long run, at least the, the Western Roman Empire, because some of the in- incentives for paying the army were necessarily being reduced as the expansionary phase stopped and they tried to have a stable border. What is the irony in the US's victory in the internet war for control of economic activity? One can think of this as being almost a new American empire that some people would say the United States was first of all created as an empire initially itself and then expanded influence further into Latin America without taking over the Latin American territory. But if you look back to the origins of the United States, there were 13 states. And most of the remaining territory was either purchased or uh, obtained through negotiation that had force either directly in the equation or in the background. And so so the very expansion and creation of the United States was one that involved um, a a lot of violence or threats of violence. And the irony is that now in the second empire, the companies involved in it have a great mechanism for expanding without any violence at all. But nonetheless, it turns out that most of them are U.S. companies and at, uh, at the top or, or Chinese companies. Those are the two main sources of large companies and by the vast majority are in the U.S. It's partly ironic because the U.S. government has not directly sought that influence. It has created the preconditions for success in a much better way in the United States than elsewhere but hasn't directly been pushing this. This has been a privately created empire of multiple entities, which happen to be from uh, largely the same country. And you mentioned how the loss of Latin America has been due to unwillingness for violence, but how has the US's online expansion been working better for it rather than physically taking over other territories? I think, you know, if you, if you physically take over other territories, you have access to uh, the full range of economic activity in a place. If you take over via the internet, you don't have quite such a broad range of economic activity that's under uh, the control of the companies, but it is perhaps much, uh, it's much lower cost to take over territory virtually than to take it over using military force. And in particular, it's much lower cost to maintain because honestly, many of us are very happy to be parts of this empire. Um, and so, so the, the rebellion that gets so costly for ensuring a militarily obtained empire is just not there for the internet, which makes it a type of economic expansion that has a, a, a much lower cost to maintain than the old empires. 
a question I want to talk to actually is why has Europe lags behind in comparison to America? Because you mentioned in a book that out of the top 20 internet companies, America make up 17 of them. And I think that Spotify are the highest ranked European one and they're at like 38th. So why is this, Sean? That's a great question that deserves a really long answer. Um, I'll give I'll give a short answer that that really could be a subject of another book quite easily. And I think it's related to there's almost a canary in a cage here, which is that we see that a lot of entrepreneurs from Europe have gone to the United States to do their entrepreneurial activity, and that to me is saying that somehow the fundamentals there are better. Some of the reasons for it being better are the financial mechanisms, the financial markets in the U.S. Uh, seem to have a stronger history of being supportive in venture capital. This is largely where venture capital was invented. The working conditions for the tech-style workers have historically been a little bit better, perhaps, in the United States. The way part of your question is really about Silicon Valley and why has Silicon Valley worked so well. I've heard some some really interesting ideas. That part of the reason Silicon worked very well is that it was a constrained space. It was constrained by water. It was constrained by hills. And so you had a very dense population of tech-savvy people in a relatively small geographic area who could jump from one company to another company and thus create a kind of a, a very positive feedback loop that has been missing in a lot of other places. I think Europe is planning to invest a lot of money to support new enterprises in uh, in the European Union. And the thing is, at the, at the end of the day, are those going to remain as European enterprises or not is a big question. If the financial markets end up being much more capable of acquisitions from a US-originated acquisition than in the tech space, then I think even some of the European-created companies will be purchased by US ones in the end. That's part of what happened with Booking.com and may actually be something that has happened with Spotify as well. In the contrary to this, you have an interesting chapter titled Classic War Defences. How is Russia and China's barriers to takeovers by foreign internet companies the equivalent to physical barriers of defense? Yeah, well, I think it's very close. I, I really think that's quite a high similarity. Part of that's the idea is that in the days where empires were created by taking over physical territory, you might build walls, walls that would help to make it a higher cost in a sense to attack you and lower cost for you to defend. The way that these countries have uh, largely set up their systems on the internet, it is more difficult for U.S. companies to succeed there. I think that probably the situations of Russia and China are very different. And the very natural consequences of the way they're treating the internet is if you want to be an internet company in our territory, you've got to play by our rules. And I think every Every country has the right to make that kind of statement, provided it's consistent with their other treaty obligations. And in particular, China and Russia both have very capable technical communities and capable market sizes for, for actually founding large companies. So this kind of building of metaphorical walls can work in places like that. I'm not sure it could work in some other really much smaller countries. Absolutely. And... How have companies such as Google used acquisitions and mergers 
to maintain their dominance and minimize competition as well, Sean? This is a, a topic that's that's being explored by a lot of competition authorities right now in the, the ways that they've maintained a strong position. Some people suggest that they have been absolute acquisition machines and have bought probably more than 500 companies over a 10-year period to cement some of their positions. I think a lot of those acquisitions, we come up with these really large numbers, but a lot of the acquisitions have been of quite small companies. And we, we should just recognize that, that most of the acquisitions undertaken by the very large uh, digital companies are perhaps of a very small technology, maybe a small group of of workers who are involved in a company. And so there there are nonetheless some transactions that have been really large ones, which have generated a second look by competition authorities in recent years. And, and so you see that there have been actions by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, actions by the U.S. Department of Justice, actions by the state attorney generals as well against various types of organization that have been undertaken by Google uh, which has acquired a, a fantastic vertical chain in the advertising space by, uh, you know, they've been looking at, at Facebook and the way that Facebook expanded some of its products with, uh, for example, the acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram. The acquisitions have played a role, but also network effects play a major role. So they're, they're very fundamental economic features of these markets that mean that that once one company is doing very well and has a strong position, sometimes it's more difficult for others to enter because of that. You talk about possible government and possible individual responses in the book as well, in the later chapters. Why have government responses so far been rarely effective? I think government has been late to the game, first of all. So as these strong market positions were developing, government didn't play a very major role in trying to shape the market. And perhaps that was appropriate, perhaps that was inappropriate, but they were letting a lot of the way these markets would develop happen naturally and not trying to influence it too much. Well, as it happens, the way they develop naturally has created large segments of market power and now governments are concerned. It's a little bit hard to go back and unscramble eggs is, is the way uh, we would talk about it sometimes. So now, why didn't they do anything earlier? It would have been very difficult for competition authorities to make cases that would survive in the courts earlier, I think, is one perception. And now the laws are coming into place. Perhaps we need different laws as well. And some of those laws are being brought into place, have been brought into place in the European Union Perhaps they're being proposed in the UK. There's draft legislation in the United States. I'm not sure where that draft legislation is going to go in the long run. But it is probably true that competition authorities have become much more active and consumer protection authorities have also become much more active, not only in the United States, but also in other countries. Mm. And how have these internet companies, for example, TripAdvisor, which you mentioned in the book, actually, and uh, Booking.com, how have they impacted brick and mortar companies as well? Some of the internet companies have a lot of brick and mortar companies that are one side of their platform. And so, uh, so that's one type of effect. 
Another type of effect is related to brick and mortar companies that were somehow doing the same type of job in the past that have been just overtaken by these much broader platforms. So the one example of the latter might be you used to have a lot of travel agencies all around town. I don't, this, that's the world where I grew up, a lot of travel agencies. And now it's really hard to find one. You've got to, got to look hard. And that's because the online travel agencies have done a good job of uh, mopping up a lot of the business for themselves. Um, and so that, that brick and mortar activity has, has simply, has, has perhaps moved over to being more provided on the internet. And then the internet platforms themselves are dealing with lots of providers. So TripAdvisor, for example, would be dealing with restaurants, be dealing with hotels, and has actually got a, something of a, a wall between its activities. What users don't typically recognize quite so much is that restaurants and hotels are paying a lot of money to TripAdvisor these days. They're paying money for very basic kinds of things, like for TripAdvisor to show the web link that would take you to a hotel directly costs a lot of money for that hotel. And similarly for restaurants, it's very easy now to do bookings at restaurants or hotels through through TripAdvisor to some extent. And a lot of those bookings are giving a commission to intermediaries that's reducing the revenues available to the hotels and the restaurants in aggregate. Lastly, you do highlight that these problems can only partially be solved by governments. So what kind of individual responses can one do to try and mineralize the impact or power of these internet companies? Yeah, this is a, a key point of the book, I think, that the government action on its own will not be enough to change the way these companies are operating. Really, it comes down to us having invited them into our homes. So if we continue to do that, I think government action will be hard-pressed to make significant change. But there are a lot of, lot of things we can do individually that might change some of the incentives of businesses. And just one example is if you uh, book services directly when you can. So I, I have a friend who's a computer scientist. His family went on a vacation recently. And after reading the book, they decided to make some of their hotel bookings directly. They were going to Norway. They stayed in several hotels. And they did actually book one hotel using an online travel agency, and then the others just through direct contact by phone or by internet uh, with the hotel website, they found that their rooms were a lot better when they booked direct. So that's the kind of thing that's really hard to measure online, what kind of quality of room you're going to be getting. But it was, it was their perception that the room they got from the online travel agency was inferior to the others and still equally absurdly expensive. Another example is that I think it's, it's valuable for us to be a little more patient sometimes. This is one of the things I encourage in the book. If, if you're using a ride-hailing company, often in some areas, there are two ride-hailing companies that are battling it out with each other. One of them may have slightly more drivers than the other one. And then it becomes more and more likely that the one with more drivers will be able to give you a faster response, right? And so people are either consciously or unconsciously sensitive to that and will increasingly perhaps move towards uh, having dealing with just that one company with the most drivers. 
But if that's the way they um, people respond, then the company with slightly fewer drivers will lose, 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 lose market share. And in the end, you'll end up with only one company. So I just encourage a bit more patience. And then one final example, my brother was reading the book. And one of the suggestions is that it's it's actually helpful for us to pay for the news. If we try to get all of our news for free, that's going to have some substantial uh, reduction in returns to providing good news and will affect the quality of news available generally to everybody. Uh, it may have some consequences on a very grand scale for democracy. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist at all, but I think paying for news is just a good, healthy thing to do. And so, uh, so he started doing that as a result of, of reading this book and understanding some of the, some of the challenges for, for news providers in absence of that. That was Sean Ennis, author of the book Internet Empire, The Hidden Digital War. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Sean for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.